The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is bullying expert Andrew Faust. Uh, his new book is From Bully to Bullseye, Move Your Organization Out of the Line of Fire. Two in three people experiencing bullying at work, either directly or indirectly, making it one of the most pervasive and damaging aspects of professional life today. Founder of the Faust Foundation and a bullying expert on the corporate level, Andrew Faust has been following Donald Trump's path to power. He delineates exactly what makes Trump one of the most dangerous bullies our country has ever seen and what we need to do to protect ourselves as he moves into power. Dedicated to supporting nonprofit organizations concerned with workplace well-being, Faust is currently partnering with the Yale Center for Emotional intelligence on the groundbreaking initiative emotion revolution in the workplace nice to have you here andrew thanks Catherine. great to be here well i don't have to say that your topic is timely we all know that so today yeah, we're talking unfortunately, about unfortunately yes Yes, unfortunately, I, yes, I do. We have to say it's so. Un, it's really unfortunate. So let's talk about just in general because you are the workplace expert on bullying, and that's what your book is about. So, what constitu- constitutes a workplace bully or a corporate bully or someone who bullies in the workplace, and what's the impact on the organization and everyone around uh, he or she? Well, first, uh, in terms of what constitutes bullying is, uh, is uh, actions and behaviors uh, that are meant to harm uh, an individual. Uh, and it's usually not one isolated incident, and it's usually not a question of somebody having an aggressive style. Uh, but it crosses the line when, um, when uh, the intent is, in, in fact, uh, it harms the, uh, the individual. The consequences of it uh, are huge, uh, both in, in terms of uh, people working to their full performance and productivity. Uh, there's a huge uh, number attached to uh, people not uh, being able to uh, work to their full potential. Uh, but more importantly, uh, and I, I cited in my book, uh, there's a uh, Harvard study, Harvard-Stanford study uh, conducted last year that attributes uh, 120,000 deaths annually that may be attributable to workplace stress. And um, when you look at that number, uh, you know, let's say it's, 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 it's got to be one of the biggest uh, killers, um, but uh, when you when you consider that those are premature deaths, uh, it 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 leaps right to the to the top as being a number one killer. 
Um, so, are we talking uh, about I, Andrew? Are we talk. So, are we talking about suicide when you say killer? One hundred twenty thousand deaths, or is it? I'm including yeah. suicide, and I'm including uh, p- uh, people developing uh, conditions, um, and uh, there there is a connection between. Um, uh, people developing, whether it's heart disease or uh, cancers, where the stress uh, contributes to uh, an earlier demise. But uh, but suicides is is a major factor. Now, there's not a lot of uh, work uh, and research done on um, on suicides uh, compared to. Uh, to children committing suicide because of bullying, uh, but it's def- but it's definitely there. Um, I I had an experience uh, not that long ago where I gave a talk on the topic, and uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, um, "Can I uh, give you a call uh, to talk about what my wife is going through? Because what you describe is exactly what sh- what she's facing." Uh, so I gave him my number. He called me ten days later, and um, uh, in tears, and said, "I called you too late because two days ago my wife committed suicide." Uh, now that's an anecdotal, uh, but um, um, what I have been in my interviews with people, uh, and they describe uh, their work environment. I ask a question on um, the number of premature uh, deaths within their uh, environment and it's uh, it's uh, it's not that uncommon for people to say yes uh, they they didn't necessarily pinpoint it to uh, to um, uh, 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 to uh, to suicides because suicides are usually kind of uh, when you read an obituary and, and it indicates died suddenly, uh, odds are that uh, that uh, there is uh, um, a, a suicide or a, a workplace bullying or a toxic environment is a factor in uh, in uh, in those premature deaths. Andrew, can you talk about like from the point of view, obviously, of your book, but like. You're talking about corporate bullying and the example you gave of this, the sad example, a horrible example, actually, so sad of the wife who died because of bullying. Now, are we talking about bullying, let's say, if it's your boss, your immediate boss, or is it somebody who's head of the company or head of the business? And specifically, how does it work? Because is it insidious or is it something that obviously you, ex- you go accept a job at a workplace and you don't have that expectation that you're going to be bullied. So what actually happens? Give us the scenario of what happens to one when that, 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 uh, those series of behaviors that when someone's bullying you, um, you know, begin. Well, uh, when, whenever the word bullying comes up, people associate it with, uh, children and, and, uh, and school bullying because of the exposure that it's gotten in the media because of the number of suicides. Um, uh, workplace bullying is, there are similarities, uh, but there are more differences, uh, than, um, than what uh, kids face in schools. It, in schools, it's very overt. Uh, verbal, physical, and now cyberbullying, uh, it's more out there. Uh, in the workplace, it's far more subtle, uh, where um, uh, p- 
people uh, go through being discredited to having um, uh, information that they need to do their job uh, withheld to not being included in uh, in meetings uh, uh, that they should be uh, attending in order to do their job. Uh, it, it, uh, it's continually uh, harassing. It's setting um, it's setting unreasonable targets um, uh, that um, that uh, are um, are meant, meant are designed to uh, to uh, 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 have you fail. Uh, so it's it's very uh, it, it, it's very overt and or sorry uh, uh, subtle. Uh, in contrast to school bullying, uh, what happens? What's the now, motivation? Now, now, now uh, uh, sexual abuse is also bullying, and um, and uh, if we if you read today's uh, 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 New York Times, it talks about uh, the Fox organization. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, covering up or t- trying to cover up a uh, a situation after uh, Roger Ailes left, um, and it's a typical case of uh, of, uh, of uh, sexual bullying. Uh, Wells Fargo, um, what went on there relative to creating dummy accounts is a great example of setting unreasonable targets and people having to uh, do things outside of their ethical boundaries in order to achieve the results. And if they didn't achieve the results, uh, they got fired. And in Wells Fargo case, when it was exposed, uh, the people um, who were um, um, creating the dummy accounts uh, uh, under uh, pressure to do it, uh, they were fired because of uh, of uh, that activity, and uh, that uh, very much backfired on Wells Fargo because it was a system designed as a systemic uh, system uh, that bullied people into uh, into doing things that uh, they shouldn't be doing. So are there different? Then, so are you saying, Andrew? Then, there's different. Are you saying that there are different motivations behind bullying? I mean, sure. sexual abuse would be yeah, different than it, say what you're describing is well Wells Fargo. So let's take. I guess there isn't any t- typical kind of. Um, well, well, the most the, the most yeah. typical is to get rid of people for what for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of the most common that I've found is where people um, uh, are a threat to their boss and, um, and or a threat to the boss's power and control. And when that occurs, uh, people are targeted with the intent to get rid of them. Other, uh, other reasons for bullying is, uh, is discrimination and bias. And um, so you don't uh, like somebody. You have to work with somebody, or you're the boss of somebody who, different religion, woman, person of color, whatever those kinds of of, of uh, uh, biases in the workplace. Yes, and yes, so then, yes. then yeah, and yes. they so they want to get rid of somebody, and this is the, how they do it through bullying. Uh, yes, okay. and usually it's a systemic approach. 
Uh, there's a you know there's a formula that that they use that uh, that uh, uh, harasses the person to the point that they become what the bully wants them to become, a poor performer with a bad attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that happens, uh, the, the target has fallen into the bully's trap. So as a person who's being bullied, how do you know? I mean, because we want this to be, let's say, anyone who's listening who might think, you know, I'm in that kind of a situation. What do I do? How do I extricate myself? How do you get out of it? How do you, you you know, you realize so that you don't get to the point of the the example you gave? The first step, sorry. Yeah, the the first step is to try to understand what's going on. Uh, Usually your gut tells you because of things that are going on. Uh, but uh, it, it, people don't necessarily tie uh, seemingly unrelated comments, events, situations uh, to uh, what is actually happening to them. And they usually find out too well well into the situation where, uh, again, they become what the bully wants them to become. Uh, so to, to identify as early as you can Something is something is amiss here. Something is wrong, and your instinct or gut will tell you that. Um, once you once once you start questioning that, my advice to people is don't deal with it alone, and don't accept that you know this is just the the manager style or that's there's nothing I can do. That's just the way it is around here. But but to understand it. And to understand it, you can start thinking about ways to deal with it. And uh, and uh, there's a lot of pe- people that get advice on how to cope with it. And um, and in my experience, coping is not enough. It's important to have people cope with what they face in the workplace. But the the real purpose should be to put a stop to it. And um, and um, now, this is where the bullying is, you know, not as overt as something like sexual bullying, but where people are being set up for failure. And But, the, uh, but I have to stop you there because I think most people are, and, and I, I unfortunately I think I do know people who have experienced what you're talking about. The fear is, I'm going to lose my job. I can't afford to lose my job. I have to figure out how I can deal with this or cope with it, even though I know that it's the wrong thing to do. And that's kind of like... I mean, it's it, it it goes against your survival, and well, it do, I guess it does or it doesn't. I'm not sure which, but it it's it's that fear of I really need this job, and I have to do whatever I can to to keep it. And um, it seems to me that gets in the way of actually trying to do something to engage other people to say, hey, look, this is what's happening to me, and I need to stop it, and I need your help. Well, and 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 in stopping it. Um uh, you have to be very careful, and that's why I advise people to not deal with it alone. And in so many instances, people do deal with it alone. They fall into the trap, and they, and they lose their job anyway. And um, and what I advise is is to people to really uh, work with others, and uh, and uh, and not necessarily human resources. Because a lot of people say, "Well, you know, go to human resources, and they'll uh, they'll uh, help you deal with this." And I found that in over eighty percent of the cases, human resources is part of the problem versus part of the solution. Uh, 
and that's unfortunate because uh, they should be uh, playing uh, the role that uh, that uh, chief financial officers have with the numbers in terms of maintaining the integrity of the, the numbers. Uh, human resources uh, should be uh, mandated uh, and held accountable and responsible for maintaining the integrity of, uh, of the organization's culture and values and beliefs. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the case today. But uh, that being said, that there are people that, uh, that uh, they may uh, identify within the organization who will be able to help them go uh, through. Uh, help them uh, both from a coping perspective but also also putting it to uh, to the to uh, to uh, to rest um, you know in terms of um, of, uh, of uh, more overt abuse um, um, I would say that to accept it, and not try to confront it um, uh, in in some form uh, will do irreparable damage uh, to the person's uh, 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 mental and and uh, physical health. Well, what and do you say to to us as a uh, as a country? I guess uh, uh, voting for someone who uh, we had the knowledge uh, of uh, sexual abuse, um, and still, uh, you know, half the voting pop, pop well, probably not half, less, I guess, of the voting population voted for someone to be the leader of our country, to be our president, who was on tape talking about his or bragging about his sexual abuse performance what does that say well about him but also about us well i'm not a an, i'm a canadian citizen uh, you can and, still say <laughs> and 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 i but i am a world citizen and you know i'll give you that perspective uh what's you know what's going on, not just with Trump, uh, but around the world, is, um, is, re- is, is so reminiscent of what occurred uh, in the 1930s. And uh, unfortunately, um, this is because uh, um, uh, the establishment politicians the pundits and the um, uh, media did did not understand the uh, the uh, uh, the populace, and and there are legitimate grievances uh, that people have, and people are looking for um, for. Um, uh, resolutions. They are looking for a messiah, a light figure uh, that they can trust. And what the, what was presented to them uh, on Trump's part uh, was uh, a misguided, blind trust. 
and uh, people assume that because it comes out of his mouth with force, it's got to be true. And uh, and um, um, uh, it, it you know it it it's it, it, from my perspective um, uh, it's. Um, uh, it's just shown how fragile uh, democracy is, and it it also, uh, and I'll give you a bit of a, a premonition. It will also show how fragile the checks and balances are if he is uh, if he is inaugurated on the twentieth. And I say if he's inaugurated because what just came out. Um, is um, is um, 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 could be treasonous, and uh, someone, uh, whether it's the current president or the um, Congress or the Supreme Court, needs to before the twentieth make a call to say, is there any validity to uh, what's out there? And uh, and Trump is saying it's fake news. And we should believe him. So what he hasn't given us to date is a reason to believe him. The Russians are saying there is it's fake news and it's a witch hunt. The Russians have given us no reason to believe them. So if we can't believe them from what they've said before, how can we believe them in this instance? And and again, uh, somebody or a group of people really need to take a hard look at this before the 20th and make a call. Do you think the press or the journalists are be, are doing that? I, I mean, I've I've uh, uh, was watching uh, the, last night. I think it was MSNBC, and one of the journalists was talking about. They've really been have had, I guess. I mean, they've been sort of involved in this for the past few months, not just now, and 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 aware of some of this uh, stirrings of this intel, but they haven't been able to actually prove anything. So they are out there. There are people, there are journalists, there are the members of the press, the CIA. Uh, so that is a, a group, as you say, that um, is, you know, another branch of, of our government that is trying to get validation if this information is true or not. Yes. So again, you know that the the the, uh, the um, uh, uh, is, I guess the issue is uh, that you know that it has been out there, and uh, the news media have uh, up until this point uh, elected not to uh, to to uh, to broadcast it uh, because it wasn't uh, validated. And um, but you've got to consider uh, that if it's important enough for the intelligence community to brief uh, the president and the president elect on it, uh, there's got to be more to the story than a uh, 
a a person who uh, did the investigation and uh, felt it significant enough to go to the FBI with it. Uh, so it's you know the the timeline on it is uh, is uh, very tight, um, and um, and uh, I would be concerned uh, if I were an American uh, to uh, have this uh, blow up uh, after the inauguration. Because uh, if that's the case, um, uh, I think this guy would uh, take any measure uh, once he's in power to protect his power and control. And uh, and there's a playbook for that. Uh, uh, and uh, it's rumored that he's been following that playbook. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, it puts democracy and the checks and balances that uh, should be in, that, that 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 are in place at risk. So there's a constant, but let's say uh, information gets is out there, it gets validated before the inauguration, then constitutionally, and I don't know, I, maybe you do, if you do, you can inform us, but what, and, and, and there is a, um, I guess there is a real question about treason or whatever, you know, crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors, I guess it is, and it happens before the inauguration, what happens constitutionally, who, what, is, is there a precedent for this? I, I'm, I'm no expert in the Constitution, uh, but um, um, uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, the parties and the various branches of government are, are looking at that very carefully as we speak. I would hope that they're looking at it. As we as we speak, and you know this is kind of unprecedented territory, um, uh, and uh, and uh, because there is, or if there is no provision for this type of thing, um, then um, then um, um, uh, uh, if I were in uh, the shoes of uh, of um, the legislators or the courts uh, or the parties, uh, I would certainly uh, uh, make a call uh, on it. But again, uh, I'm, I'm speaking as a layperson, uh, uh, not as a lawyer or a constitutional expert. Well, as you describe it, I'm sure I, I would be very surprised if there weren't all of those people that you described who are working on it right now. I mean, it's, uh, and uh, I guess we just have to leave it with a big question mark because, as you say, it's unprecedented. Who knows what would happen or what will happen? Um, I want to, we only have a minute left, so I want to uh, mention your book again From Bullying oh, yes. to Bullseye. What? Well, if you, uh, if you look at my uh, uh, chapter one, it's a, it's the shortest uh, chapter uh, on record. Um, I would think it's the shortest chapter on record, and uh, it's called Trump. Um, so, considered that the book was written um, 
before uh, before he got elected, um, um, I chose to uh, uh, just put the word Trump there because it identifies the profile of a bull. And well, you were right we, on target. Speaking of bullseye you. or bullying, so from bully <laughs> to bullseye, move your organization out of the line of fire. Andrew Faust, first chapter, Trump. Uh, you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Catherine. Enjoyed the chat. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is author and technology expert Sarah Granger, author of The Digital Mystique, How the Culture of Connectivity Can Empower Your Life, online and off. The Internet era is often criticized for undermining our privacy, concentration, well-being, and our ability to maintain real relationships. Sarah Granger, a nationally recognized digital media innovator who has worked at the White House, Department of State, and other federal agencies as a resource on technology policy, shows us in her book how to own our own digital identities, follow digital etiquette, and also informs us as to what to make of social media trends. She is featured on CBS News, Good Morning America, NBR, and is recognized as one of the 40 under 40 rising stars by the Silicon Valley Business Journal. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Uh, your book, which I read, and I was really, it's a great book. First of all, it is for lay people uh, like myself. Uh, it is, I mean, it is really a how-to book. And uh, so the digital mystique, once you finish the book, it's it's not mysterious anymore. You really will learn the culture of connectivity and learn how to empower your life. It's really true. So I'll start with that. Um, the digital, what, what, but first describe 
what is the digital mystique? Specifically, what is it? How does that affect all of our lives? Well, the digital mystique is really sort of the, the aura around this whole new global connected society that we have um, thanks to the Internet and this sort of mysterious nature of it. And I gave it that name because I, I felt like it really encapsulated how we still have lots of questions about where we're going and how social media can impact all of our lives and our world. And so each of the chapters in the book is really a different um, look at the parts of our lives where we engage online. So um, our digital identity, our romantic relationships, our friendships, our kids, seniors online, building communities, um, online activism, and then your business, and um, of course, how you spend your time online. So those are the different um, chapters, and, and one of them also about how do you leave your legacy as well. So each one sort of dives into um, how we use social media and the Internet in these areas of our lives and how we can have a deeper relationship um, with other people and use the Internet and, and these wonderful tools in a positive way so that it's not all of the doom and gloom that we hear so much about um, the Internet. Because for me, I got online when I was very young. Um, at the end of the 80s, it was, it was very early. It was before the web. And my experience has been, for the most part, positive. So I, I wanted to convey that through the book. Yeah, and I think you did. I mean, you, you absolutely did. And you sort of, uh, you target each one of us. So there's something in there for all of us, as you just described, each one of the age groups and who we are and how we use it. So I think that's important, though, what you said, Sarah, because, you know, it's been positive for you. There is kind of a digital divide, though, don't you think, between a certain age, like maybe over, I'm just making this up, but over 50 and under 50, and, and the ones who are over 50 are much more skeptical about it and always talking about, as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's a bad thing, the, the, the internet, or being online has ruined our lives, and it's really quite the opposite, it's really enhanced everything that we've been able to do, mm -hmm. so, yeah, so, what, how do you, well, that's, I guess, two questions, or two points to discuss, but what, so what would you say to that? I mean, do you think that there are, there is kind of a digital divide in terms of who thinks or how we use our online, how we, how we use the, the web and how we use being online? Yeah, well, I actually, I, I pull that back a little bit and I look at how people use it, look at technology in general and their comfort level. And so it really I think it comes to back to computer use. And so those of us who grew up using computers in school um, have a much easier comfort level with technology in general, and that translates to online. And those who didn't, it's, it's just they, they grew up with typewriters, telephones. It's just a different comfort level and a different mindset. And you and for me, I, I was typing and, and using a computer at such an early age that I think it really did um, help shape my brain and how I think about things. So I, I tend to think about technology in a way that more reflects what millennials, how they use it um, because of that early exposure. So um, 
when I look at people who are, usually I, I think that particularly over 60, you get to the point where, where it's really, they're, they're very comfortable with the email. They might be on Facebook, and, and, but they'll mostly lurk, call them the lurkers. And uh, so, so <laughs> they're not as comfortable engaging there. But, you know, it's never too late to try. There, there uh, was a woman who was an extended family member of ours who passed away last week, but she was on Facebook in her hundreds. And so, you know, when there's someone like that, you can, you can never say that you're, you're too old um, to, to give it a try. But I do think that uh, you, you have to tiptoe into it. You have to be, do what, what's comfortable for you. I don't, I don't ever uh, advocate forcing anyone onto technology, especially social media. One of the things, and there's, I mean, there's so many things that you cover in your book, but um, and one of the chapters, I think it was right in the beginning, but you were talking about a, a, well, owning your digital identity, for instance, and there was uh, one woman who was a therapist, so I kind of hooked into this, and shy, and uh, wasn't really someone who felt comfortable using the, uh, going online and having a, a digital identity. Um, until things changed in her own actual person, real life, like she got divorced and she set up her practice and she wanted to be more out there and that sort of changed everything for her. And then she became more engaged online in terms of her digital identity, um, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, the, you know, what happens in your own life in that example really does impact on the way you begin to use um, your or have an online presence, we should say. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I, I tell people to think about what you want to convey publicly and, and how you want yourself to be perceived so that you can control and curate uh, what people see about you. And it's not censorship, it's not inauthentic. You want to be your authentic self, but you need to have spend some conscious effort thinking about what you want to show people online so that your best self is is presented. People use it, though, for very different things, as we've sort of been talking about. I mean, some people use it for really just for, for friendship, for connection, for information, to attach themselves to groups. If uh, Let's say if one is sick and one wants to connect with other people who have the same disease or the same family problems, and other people use it simply for marketing. They want to market a business or market mm-hmm. themselves and kind of stay away from the personal. So I, I guess, I mean, and, and you obviously you covered all that in the book. So let's talk about that because you we have very different reasons for uh, being online. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of it. That's, that's the thing. You can make of it what you want. And um, everyone has a different comfort level. So, for example, Facebook, if you think about the whole friending process and how, you know, some people will friend anyone um, and other people will only friend people who they know very well. Some people will only actually friend family members. Some people will refuse to uh, friend anyone who they work with. Um, Whereas if you look at LinkedIn, they, people, when they look at, when they use that professionally, they um, may only friend, connect with people there that they um, have worked directly with. Um, other people might connect with anyone. So it's, it's very specific to um, what your goals are and 
um, how you want to use social media. Obviously, there are things that I advise, you know, depending on your goals, but I do think that that's really the key is to, to sit down and think, okay, well, what do I want to achieve here if I'm going to be spending all of this time um, tweeting about my work or sharing what I'm doing, you know, what's, what's the point of it? Because in the end, we, we do spend a lot of time on social media, and so we have to uh, make sure that time is worthwhile. So we constantly have to be evaluating ourselves and our motives for why we are online and how long we spend online in, in mm-hmm. terms of our time. And also, you talk about uh, TMI, too much information. Is there such thing as too much information, too much sharing online? Because you're sharing it to the world, essentially. Yes, there is. I think, I mean, everyone, again, it, we, do, we do all have our comfort levels, but at the same time, there is also an etiquette scenario where, you know, if somebody keeps posting this every day what they ate or um, every time they're at their kid's soccer game and their, their kid, you know, kicks the ball and they're posting every single time their kid has the ball, you know, it does get to a point where you have to think about your audience. And sure, that's, that's fine. If it's meaningful to you, that's great. Take video of every single one of them. Keep them for yourself. But think about uh, who, who is going to see this. And, and so it does, you do have to think about it in terms of marketing or perception a little bit to understand why um, it can get to the point of oversharing. And it does sometimes make other people uncomfortable uh, when, you know, when certain personal details are shared. So uh, I generally just tend to look back and say, well, if you were in a room with people, having a conversation in person, would you keep telling them all about these things over and over again? <laughs> no, you wouldn't, because that, that they would walk away, they would get really bored, and that's just not very social. So think about general uh, social etiquette and go from there. Well, that's good. That puts that into context. What about, and I think there's a recent, or I, and I must have seen it online, lawsuits about, you know, parents who are sharing stuff about their kids, babies, young children, and the children obviously don't have any say in it, or neither do the babies, and I, I even get a lot of, I've had a lot of pictures of, let's, of, of young women, let's say, who've had uh, uh, premature births, and they'll have pictures of their babies in there, and, in, in, you know, in the NICU, I mean, that's an example, uh, or, or, you know, sick children, and that's out there, and it's really personal, and maybe something that later on their children may not want to or would be very upset about knowing that their parents sort of shared this kind of information with the world. Privacy issues, how do you address that? That's a new topic that's, that's been out there recently, people talking about how you could potentially be sued later on by your kids. I don't think it will happen very frequently, but I do generally advise people to err on the side of uh, caution and, and be conservative with what you put out there about your children. Um, I used to blog a little bit more when my daughter was younger um, and talk about her in very general terms. I never used her photo, and, and pretty much I stopped after maybe she was like, five or six, I, I stopped doing that because I decided that I just wasn't comfortable with it, so I, I only share her 
uh, photos and things about her every once in a while on Facebook with friends only. And that's what I feel comfortable with. Some people will post everything, share everything, and their kids get used to being the subject of blogs or on Instagram. Um, and there is certainly a potential that that could backfire when when they're older, especially if they don't ask permission. But the, one of the things that, that a lot of uh, you know parent bloggers and, and people in the social media community say is just ask your kids. You know, when they get to the point where you can ask their permission, do it before just sharing. So my daughter, she's 11 now, I, I definitely will ask her permission before I share anything at this point. But I will tell you, you know, as a parent, that the, the writing the chapter on kids online was absolutely the hardest part of this book. Um, mm-hmm. It was the biggest chapter. I had to pare it down. There's just so much we have to think about as, as parents, and it's certainly not easy. One of the other topics, which also I think is a, an interesting one, maybe a difficult one, too, you talk about gender bias online. What's that? Well, there, you know, we, we have certainly sexism offline, so there's no reason that you would assume that somehow it would be magically gone online. And um, so you do see cases where, for example, someone, you know, men will be less likely to follow women online um, for business purposes or or share their retweets or mention them in articles online when it would be just when they when 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 for example you've got a female source um, or an expert who is just as qualified as a man you, you just you see the same kind of activities happening and, and of course most of it is uh, subconsciously done but there definitely is is gender bias and I'm sure there is also racial bias and other um, biases against people with disabilities etc so you know we do have to dig be cognizant of this and think about it. And there was, I recall a few years back, um, someone who was on Twitter who was an online influencer, male, and he realized on his own that he was only following uh, men on Twitter. And so he turned it into a, a little campaign to, to find women that were interesting and made it a, a public thing that he was doing so that he could just get people more conscious about it and and make himself more aware and, and by proxy others who might not realize that they were potentially biased in what they were doing online. So it just reflects the same our, a behavior that's not online. It's really reflected, it reflects the same kinds of biases that we have and er, that we have to deal, that we sh- should be dealing with and should be aware of, not online, but it's also reflected when we do get online. The same kinds of things, I guess, is what you're saying. Um, yeah. One of the things that I'm always afraid of, and maybe I've just gotten more paranoid about it, and also I get a lot more, I guess, uh, requests to vote for things online, to vote against things online, to sign petitions online. And I'm and even things that I feel very strongly about issues, I, and I, I'm tempted to do it, but I don't because I'm afraid I don't know where this information is going to. Or, uh, But in some ways, I'm probably missing out, and my signature would be important, to, you know, whatever the issue may be that I'm concerned about. So I don't really know what to do. So can you talk about that? Sure. Online activism is, is definitely an amazing uh, opportunity for all of us, but we do have to keep 
keep aware that some of it can come across as lazy web. Um, some of it can go into the ether and disappear if you're just sort of talking to your silo. So uh, when it comes to things like petitions, I generally think of the who who is it directed to and which organization is um, running the petition. So if it's through change.org and it's through a reputable nonprofit, you know those people are going to take all those names and they will get them to members of Congress. So that's worth putting your, your name on. Um, you know, the White House petitions, obviously that's been a great service. Um, I didn't work there, but I, I worked with some of the people who were in the White House on various things, including their um, precursor to their petition system. And so I think it's very important that we have that vehicle, and I, I certainly hope that they will keep it um, moving forward so that people can share their views and get responses. Um, the other thing you can do for someone uh, in your shoes who, who has an online presence and is active online is you can definitely weigh in and, and either write blog posts, tweet about it, share on Facebook. If there's something that you really care about, you have the opportunity. And I think that sometimes it's easy to forget that we, we can actually uh, shift people's perspective in a good way. I, For example, with the, uh, the recent election, I have a background in um, computer security. And so I had a lot of people messaging me privately, what do you think about the hacking? I don't know what to think about this. And I realized that I had... I had purposely been waiting to say something about it online because I wanted to get more facts, but at the same time there were people who were really confused and who could use some some guidance on how to look at the problem. So I, I started sharing a little bit more about my thoughts on it after, after I was uh, contacted. Well, let's talk about that. Let's... let's uh... What are your thoughts on that? What about this computer hacking? Let's bring this into the, you know, bring this into the specifically into our election and 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 what's happening. What uh, what did you say to these the, the people who are asking you and uh, the information that you gave that you give online about hacking? Well, you know, this this election was really interesting. It just if even if you take the the, the politics, the partisan out of it and you look at it from the perspective of um, how quickly information gets disseminated. When President Obama was elected, it, it was just at the point where um, we had gotten to the majority of Americans being online and, and researching politics online. Now we're at this point where the majority of us are actually active online and talking about things online. And so the Internet played this amazing role at disseminating information quickly, whether it was true or not. So you had the what may or may not have been going on um, behind the scenes with hacking. You had all these fake news sites. We had information um, creation and curation. We had activity on Twitter. We had um, the whole non-scandal about the email. We had all kinds of online activism going on in secret Facebook groups. We had the usual online fundraising and petitions, but it all kind of came together um, in addition to the offline um, stories like, um, you know, what happened at the end with, with Comey as an example. Just it all goes viral so quickly that I think 
we weren't prepared for that. We we weren't prepared for how quickly um, all of these different things going on could affect the political landscape. And so it's definitely something to think about moving forward um, with with our process. But when you say think about it, I mean, we don't have that much time. Um, well, I, I'm not talking about this election. I'm saying in future yeah. elections. But, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is really tricky what's going on right now. And, and uh, you know, I don't... I, was listening to what you were talking about on the, with the previous guest, and I don't have the uh, legal chops to, to talk about, um, you know, where we go in terms of, um, you know, the next week. But I, but I can say that, uh, you know, there are lots of different ways that, that you can hack into, um, into a system and a lot of it can be done through social engineering that's actually done offline and so it's not traceable so people can can find uh, entry points without actually going online and then they'll go in and they'll do these surgical strikes and they'll get out and so you don't have a lot of a um, trace and then the, the the fascinating thing you know and frustrating um, about this election was how much public perception can be easily shifted through these subtle movements, um, whether it's in the news or in the um, or or within the systems themselves. So that's that's as a technologist and someone who has worked on voting technology policy. That's what concerns me for future elections because there's. There's not a lot I personally can do right now about this one, but except try and help people people informed, which I think is critical. I mean, it's key. Just all the stuff that you, the information you've shared with us today, and also you know specifically at the end about this election. Yeah, because I, I think that most people are pretty much not informed about all of this. I mean, it's all new, and uh, and very frustrated. Like what do you do? How do you, I mean, this is a whole new world. This definitely is a whole new world in terms of politics and government and, um, and no one seems to really have an answer. Um, so, um, <laughs> we're yeah, waiting for tough, your answer. It's a tough time. Yeah, it it really is a tough is. time. It's a very tough time. Um, we only have about a minute left. We have exactly a minute left. So I want to mention your book again, The Digital Mystique, How the Culture of Connectivity Can Empower Your Life, online and off, Sarah Granger. You can buy the book online and off, bookstores everywhere. Uh, and Sarah, just give us a website we can go to for more information about the book and you. Sure, you can just go to sarahgranger.com, Sarah with an H. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great having you. Thank you. The Digital Mystique, Sarah Granger. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 